This episode is sponsored by Craft Beer Delivery Club, Beer 52. Good. Was that fun? Did you have fun? Yeah, yeah, it was great. Thank you. Yeah, are you going to cut out the bits where I sound stupid? The whole thing? (laughs) That's made my day. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to cut out the whole thing. We're going to record it next week. Today, I'm honoured to have on the show the eminent Professor Sue Black. Now... The eagle-eyed or eared among you will note that a Professor Sue Black has already been on the show. However, in truly extraordinary circumstances, or at least one hell of a coincidence, this is a different Professor Sue Black from the forensic anthropologist of episode 37. And most marvellously of all, the two professors know and have met one another. Anyway, I better get introducing today's Professor Sue Black, who is an award-winning computer scientist and technology evangelist at Durham University. She is perhaps best known for her instrumental work in saving Bletchley Park, the home of the Code Breakers during the Second World War. For those who don't know, Bletchley Park is the famous setting where Alan Turing's machine cracked the Enigma Code, meaning the Allies were able to know what the Germans were getting up to. At least, that was the plot of the film, The Imitation Game, with Benedict Cumberbatch and Keira Knightley. In reality, Turing played a key role in a huge team of people all working together to crack those codes. What went on there was top secret, and many of the thousands stationed there went to their deaths decades later without uttering a word about it. We're still finding out more about what really went on there, but what we do know is that it was set to be demolished and redeveloped before Sue's intervention. She's been through what she describes as different degrees of shit, having grown up in an abusive home. She found herself with no real qualifications with a couple of kids in her early 20s, so to become a professor of her standing is no mean feat. She talks about her upbringing as well before we get into the Bletchley Park history and future. Her book, Saving Bletchley Park, was the most successful crowdfunded project of all time, and it documents how Sue managed to make use of the new medium, at the time anyway, of Twitter to unite passionate people from around the world, including the wonderful Stephen Fry, to come together and save the park. There's now even a museum there which you can go and visit. Get Sue's book in all the normal places, Saving Bletchley Park, that is. There'll be a link in the show notes. We'll talk about computers, codebreakers, and what it was like meeting Stephen Fry and the Queen. By the way, I did ask about quantum computing, but Sue informed me that wasn't her speciality, so we talked about other stuff. And the reason I mention that is just because I took that out, but I reference it later on when talking about the Queen. So just in case you were confused at that point, that's what that was about. Quantum computing. Last week, Apple were nice enough to feature this podcast in their carousel, so at the top of the app. So welcome to all the new listeners, and please make sure to subscribe to this show. You can find video clips on youtube.com slash andrewgold1, and get a bonus interview with every episode on patreon.com slash andrewgold, or just in the Patreon app if you download it. Follow me on andrewgold underscore ok on Twitter and Instagram, and you'll find Sue on at Doctor underscore, well, doctor as in dr, at dr underscore black. Here she is. I'm just changing my background. Oh, look at that. Ta-da! I'm in Durham. <laughs> well, I'm actually in London. 
<laughs> yeah, I like that. I guess you are a computer scientist, so you're good at that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. My concern was because I got the similar headphones to you, but then when I've done that, I get like yeah. loads of weird stuff around the headphone area, like well, the yeah, background. Well, yeah, I've got it here. Look, you can like, no, this side. Yeah, I wonder if but I should yeah, do I'm it. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what to do about that. I had a funny thing recently, actually, because um, there was a blue painting that's like a square, which actually... yeah. Oh, it's, it's here. Oh, that's your real background. Wow. Yeah, this is me. Just a white, it's not it's just a white wall. blurred out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this blue painting, basically, the um, I, I rent this flat and uh, okay. I'm in Berlin, and it's yeah. like a, Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. How is so, Berlin? Oh, it's uh. Whenever people ask that, I always look out the window as if like they'll know how it is. It's fine. <laughs> yes, it's good. Everyone's it's, okay. <laughs> yeah, they seem all right out there. Although actually out that very window yesterday, I saw a bunch yeah. of people getting arrested and they were like thrown on the floor, arms behind their oh backs. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Still kicking off. But yeah, the yeah. person who owns this flat, her sister made that painting. Oh wow. And so she got in touch and she was like, look, this is a copyright infringement. Really? Yeah. She was actually, she was very nice about it. She but wasn't she was happy like, that you're publicizing her painting. Well, she was like, can you, can you at least put my name in it? Which... <laughs> I understand, like, you know, it's art and stuff. I didn't even notice yeah. it. It was just there. So yeah. I just said, like, I was like, look, it's, it's, I'll do some of the old, I'll backdate some of them and put your name in it. Yeah. But like, in the future, I'm just going to take it because it's a podcast. Yeah, take it down. yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I get it as well. She doesn't want her art stolen. You know, I, people, they, they must have that a lot. They're, oh, I see. You know. Yeah. But then surely it's good for your art to be publicized, isn't it? If I write her name. Right. Okay. Yeah, right. I'll just shut up. I don't really know. I don't know either. I don't know. She's probably right. We don't. What do we know? So you're, I'm recording as, yeah. as you know. This is all Oh, okay. Yes. Oh, well, all <laughs> of it. Oh, my goodness. Have I said anything libelous? You've said every, everything you've said has been libelous so far. <laughs> um, although, is it slander? Don't know. So, But yeah, I can never remember what's what anyway. Oh, yes, slander. It's not libel, is it? Anyway. It's all the same, isn't it? It's all whatever you, the things you've said have been very offensive and horrible, but I'll cut some of those out. <laughs> Tell me, how did you meet the other Sue Black? So, so people listening to this yeah. know Sue Black, uh, yeah, and, and now you're also Sue Black. How did you yeah. come across her? What do you mean? I'm also, I thought I was the first one. How rude. <laughs> I don't know which of you was first. Oh, well, she was born a year before me. <sighs> That's her then. So I guess that's her, yeah. Uh, no, it's really funny. So I've known about her for 25 or 30 years. We've known about mm. each other. Um, mm. And I first saw her name because I picked up a copy of um, The Guardian on the Tube, like the weekend thing, uh, magazine, yeah. and it had um, a quote from somebody, you know, like blah, blah, blah. And I was just reading through these quotes and it said, Dr. Sue Black. And I was like, but hang on, that's me, like, next year or something when I get my PhD. How weird. So then I knew there was someone called Dr. Sue Black that wasn't me. And then um, what happened after that? I think maybe mm. I emailed her to say, oh, I'm now Dr. Sue Black as well. Um, and then we sort of corresponded, like, every couple of years or something when someone would mistake us for each other. Um, and that, And as we've both got more and more famous over the last 20 years or so, then... Now we get mistaken for each other all the time now. So I'm always getting people on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter, like even today on Twitter, mistaking us for, you know, us for each other. And um, and so 
like for the last kind of maybe 10 years, we've sort of been threatening to meet up. And then when I got the job at Durham and she was at Dundee, it wasn't that far away for us to actually meet up. And so then she invited me up to, to be part of a project that she was running. Um, they had this a big kind of like workshop day to be like their digital expert. So I was like, oh, yeah, cool. We actually get to meet up. So I got the train up from Durham uh, up to Dundee. And um, the night before the meeting, I met with a friend who works at Dundee Uni. I walked past a, a toilet, actually, and the other Professor Sue Black walked out. So we kind oh. of like bumped into each other in front of the loo and went, oh, my God, it's you. Oh, my God, it's you. Uh, so that was really cool. And then I got a selfie with her um, and her skull <laughs> that she has in her office because the loo was next yeah. door to her office. So we got a selfie together. We're like, oh, I'm so glad to finally meet you kind of thing. And then spent the next day with her um as part of the project and just kind of like hung out a bit and um yeah now we're like kind of besties that's nice you're lucky she's not a murderer or something then you'd be getting hate (laughs) hate mail true True. do you know the other andrew gold um i don't know who's the other andrew gold he's a singer from the 80s he's some oh right which band oh oh what a lonely boy Oh, oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah, I remember that song. Yeah, <laughs> that was Andrew. Oh. He died. He died a few years ago. He was, oh, did he? he was only oh, yeah, he was like fifty-three or something. Hmm. That's younger mm. than me. That's not good. He was young. He mm. was young. Um, yeah. Oh, I forgot to ask. Um, yeah. Are you able to record on your side? Yeah. What do you want me to? Uh, if you've what, got, like, do you have like QuickTime or something? iPhone. Little red button. Yeah. Yes, you got it. I clicked it. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, See, great. I don't know everything. I don't even know you have to click record. That's one of the annoying <laughs> things, I suppose, if you're a computer scientist, people must expect. They expect me to know everything about everything to do with technology, how to fix their printer through to what's the latest innovations in AI. Yeah. What does a computer scientist know? What do you know? Well, it kind of feels like nothing and everything. It's quite weird. I think, you know, I think like as you, you know, like I guess I got my degree in 93. So that's a long time ago. Then my PhD in 2001. So I've kind of been studying and researching and looking at stuff and reading for a very long time. And like I think, I feel like the more I know, the less I know in a way. I, I don't quite know how to explain it, but yeah, I kind of feel like I know nothing. And then you meet someone who doesn't actually know much about a subject they say they know a lot about. And you're like, oh, I know so much more than them about it. So it, it's just a bit weird. It's impossible to quantify, I think. Hmm. Is it, my, my head is imagining, because I know nothing about any of this. So my head is imagining mm. lots of ones and zeros and putting them all together. And for some reason that makes a computer. Yeah, that's it basically. Yeah, is that it? Well, in fact, I've I've got a podcast coming out, or we've got a podcast coming Ooh. out at Durham, which is a hundred moments that rocked computer science, and we talk about exactly that sort of thing. Uh, okay, because mm. yeah, I did this. I did a year of computer science at AS level when I was seventeen. Okay, and it was called computing, and that was it. Yeah, and I thought it was going to be basically this teacher cornered me and a couple of mates, and it was like our last day of the year. Yeah, and he said, um, "Oh, you, you know, you should do computing." And he sort of, he I think he knew nobody had signed up to it, and he needed somebody <laughs> to sign up. So he was like, well, yeah. "Like, is it hard?" And he was like, "No, yeah. it's basically like MS Word. You just like open Word and learn how to do this and that." And we were yeah. like, oh, well, that sounds like a fourth A-level that's going to be really easy, an easy A. Yeah. We turned up the next year and it was all just like, yeah, looking at these books from the 1950s and 60s. Yeah, it was, oh, yeah, yeah, one, zero, one, zero, all this stuff. And I was just like, oh, my God, what have I signed up to? This is impossible. <laughs> I couldn't do it. Did you pass? No. No, I failed. No. Yeah. Oh, well. 
Yeah. I didn't take the exam. I've the got, only... I haven't got any A-levels, you know, so I won't worry about it. That's right. Tell me a bit about, about <laughs> your early life, would you please? Um, you know, sure. Yeah, go on. What, what, there's a bit at the beginning of your book, about your brilliant book about that. So please, for the listeners. Uh, well, so um, I guess I've been geeky from an early age. And like my favourite thing to buy my pocket money as a, as a kid was maths textbooks. I was always kind of into maths and that sort of thing. Uh, I come from like an average family, both my parents are nurses, brother and sister are twins, five years younger than me. Um, and everything was fine, really, just kind of not nondescript, you know, nothing terrible, nothing amazing happening. And then my mum died when I was 12, um, unfortunately. And then um, my dad remarried the next year, um, possibly to the wrong person. Um, well, from my point of view, anyway. Uh, and um, and I sort of went from living in a functional family to a dysfunctional family, I guess. And I was very unhappy. It was a lot of emotional cruelty, a bit of physical cruelty. Um, we were, you know, I'd, I ended up looking for some reason at like tables of levels of neglect a while ago for something. I can't remember what it was. Um, but then saw that what actually happened to us was severe neglect, which I hadn't even realised before. Because um, we didn't have enough food, didn't have clean clothes, that sort of thing. Oh, shit. Um, and so I left home as soon as I could, which was when I was 16. I lived with my friend's family for a year, um, sort of around the corner. And then um, I was doing my A-levels, but it was just impossible doing school. And I was working in the evenings and at weekends to pay my rent. Um, it just, you know, wasn't working out. I was falling asleep at school. So I left school, um, got a job working for the council, then wanted to, I was out in Essex, wanted to move to London. So I got a job working uh, with refugees in London, which I loved. And then did the same thing in Hampshire, then applied to be a student nurse. So I did that. Didn't like that at all. I was too shy. I've, I've, I'm not shy huh. now, but I've always been, ext- I was extremely shy. So I've had to work really hard to overcome that. Um, and so I hadn't thought about the fact that if you're a nurse, you have to talk to lots of people you don't <laughs> know, which, you know, like once I was in there, I was like, oh, yeah, why didn't I think about this before? But never mind. Uh, so I didn't like that at all. Um, and then I, what did I do after that? Oh, then I got a job working for RCA Records, a record company in the accounts department. So it was maths and music, going to see bands for free. So that was all cool. Did that for two years, then got married, had my daughter. Uh, when I was 21 and then I thought we'll have another baby go back to work the other baby turned out to be twin boys when I was 23 so at 23 I had three kids under two and a half Mm. and then unfortunately my marriage broke down ended up in a women's refuge had to start life uh, again so that I was still in London I was in Labrador Grove Um, start life again in South London in Brixton um, and then, so I got my daughter into school. She was four then and got the boys into play group. And then uh, I thought, okay, so what am I going to do now? I need to earn money to support my family. I'm now a single parent. Um, uh, but realized I'd left school at 16, uh, hadn't worked for a few years. So I was going to be on, you know, uh, working in a supermarket or something, supermarket, um, which is fine, but I wouldn't have earned enough money to to feed a family of four with that or pay for childcare or whatever. So I knew that going back to work wasn't an option. So I thought, okay, well, why don't I try studying again? Mm-hmm. Went along to the local college, which was Southwark College in London. Luckily they had like a fast track maths course there, which I did, which gave you the equivalent of two A-levels in maths in one year. Mm. And then got into South Bank Uni, studied computing at South Bank for a degree for four years. Got a 2-1, applied for a PhD position, Got that, did a PhD for seven years, but in the middle of that, applied for a lectureship, 
became a lecturer and then for quite some time well since then apart from a sort of break in the middle I've been in academia really being a lecturer is a long way from the shy nurse that you were you couldn't speak to <laughs> yeah. patients and then yeah, I mean that yeah, scares yeah. the hell out of me the idea of going up in front of a oh how was that the first at the beginning yeah scary I didn't sleep the night before our first class and oh luckily the first teaching I did I just had about 10 students and they were first years so it wasn't too bad and I was teaching them maths Okay. Um, so it was probably like the least scary, but I still didn't sleep the night before. And I can remember sitting in the loo before going into the class thinking, I just want to die. I don't want to go oh. in there. Yeah, I was just horrified at the thought wow. that I'd have to stand in front of a class and teach students. Um, yeah. And then I just thought, I'm going to pretend I'm someone else. So I pretended that I was my um, best friend who was like an IT consultant. I just mm. pretended I was her, my friend Hazel, and went in. I'm just like, I'm channeling Hazel. I'm Hazel. I'm Hazel, wow. like through the whole class. Uh, and it seemed to work. And the students seemed to have a good time. And I quite enjoyed it. And I came out totally buzzing at the end of it. And, you know, and so then I just kind of built it up from there, really. You know, that was it was such a shock that I actually loved doing it. You know, I wasn't expecting that at all. <laughs> I was expecting two hours of trauma that I had to kind of get through. But actually, it was fun. Um and then just kind of like built up class size up to sort of 150 over the next few years, you know, getting used to that and teaching masters and, you know, like third year degree students kind of gradually, I guess, step by step. And yeah, each time I was taking a step up, I was extremely nervous and, you know, and, you know, then kind of from then on, I ended up being on um, like radio and, and TV mm. Uh, and stuff kind of over my career so each time I've been like horrified at the next step up but then I've just kind of got on with it and then you know it's like anything once you get used to it it's easy yeah but it's like if you've never done it before you've not had any training for it and then suddenly you have to do it it's very difficult that adrenaline rush is quite addictive Mm. it's a little bit like yeah uh, karaoke or whatever and people will push you all day go on do your song and you're like oh and you're so nervous you do one and you're like oh oh I'll stay up here and do a second one now (laughs) I've never, I've never got that far. You just remind me that the only time I've done karaoke, uh, for some reason I chose it for my own party, even though I don't like mm. singing in public. And um, and again, I chose a duet and I got my friend Hazel to do it with me. And I just held the microphone in front of her the whole time. So I'd like, no one heard me. <laughs> what was what was the song? Do you remember? Uh, my Way, I think. Okay. Oh. Yeah, which actually isn't a duet, but I must have decided I need someone else up there with me. I'm trying to think of a good duet to do. I like um, that Robbie Williams song with Kylie Minogue, Kids. You know? Yeah, I can't I remember. Know, you I, sing I it. Um, <laughs> I've got a... Mm, how does it go? Oh, I've got a... You're dancing with the chairman of the board. Take a ride of my 12, cylinder symphony. you got other plans. Do you know that? No, I'm not. I'm obviously not. I'm not down with the kids, obviously, because I don't know it. And it's called kids. Uh, but yeah. that was tw- that was twenty years ago now. Oh right. Yeah. God, I'm getting oh. old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we we all are, and that's a horrible True. thing. Well, it's it's either get older or there's an alternative, which is actually worse. <laughs> oh my god! Well, I just had I did a, yeah. a, a episode a couple of weeks ago on assisted suicide. Oh really? Mm. Wow! I'll have to have listened to that. Doctor Death. Yeah, Doctor Death. Philip Nietzsche is his name. Okay. He um he's Australian. He goes around sort of helping people, uh, trying to yeah. circumvent uh, laws that don't allow it, so that he, right. he invents machines so it's that he's not helping. They push the button themselves. 
Hmm. So, yeah, a bit depressing. That sounds interesting. Well, yeah, but I'll have have to listen to that. It sounds interesting. Mm. Yes, I hope you do. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. And tell me, how does one end up in a, in a women's refuge? Well, so, you know, I woke up one morning and my ex-husband was threatening to kill me and the children. So I thought, okay, it's time to go. It's time oh to God. leave. Um, and, you know, I mean, before that he threatened me a few times, but I suppose I haven't really taken it that seriously. But then when he was like very, very, very angry and threatening to kill the kids, I just thought, I can't even risk that that's going to happen. Anything's going to happen like that in any way because they were really little. Like my daughter was three and the boys were one. Um, so what I did was ra- packed a suitcase very quickly and ran down the road to my friend's house. And then um, she said, phone Women's Aid. So she found the number and I phoned up Women's Aid, which is a, a charity which um, runs refugees around the country. And so I phoned them up and they said, we'll ring you back when we've got a place for you. So I was like, okay, then. Uh, put the phone down and then like a minute later the phone rang again so I picked it up thinking it was women's aid and it was actually my ex-husband shouting I know where you are I'm coming to kill you all now kind of oh thing my God. so I put the phone down and ran down to my other friend further down the road um, and uh, told her what had been happening and phoned up women's aid again and they gave me an address in in South London and so I borrowed, I didn't have any money at all, borrowed £20 off my friend to get a cab, got us all in a cab and down to South London. Then when we got to the address, was interviewed about what happened and, you know, checking we were all okay and that sort of thing. And then by, I think like that evening, maybe about 5pm, they gave me some emergency money to buy some food for the kids. And then I think about 5 or 6pm, took us over to a refuge and, and basically we had a room to live in um for the four of us and yeah like in a big shared house really i just don't understand how how one goes it just seems really extreme doesn't it to be threatening to kill someone yeah i just don't he obviously had some issues yeah i guess so oh Mm. god well it looks like things are looking up now though oh yeah completely Yeah. yeah that's good Tell me, let's get onto computers, right? A little bit. And yeah, then we'll get onto Bletchley yeah. as well. Okay. Bletchley cool. is a, a, a very interesting thing. But what is it? Just a layman's term, right? I want to actually yeah. go hit, what is a computer? <laughs> um, it's a machine. It's a machine that, that does things that kind of reads, can only understand ones and zeros that are, are sort of on and off at a basic level. 
and it's a machine that you can program to do things for you is that basic enough yeah no that yeah that is and i i was i'm happy because i feel i was right it is ones and zeros i, I had a sus- yeah had a vague suspicion it was ones and zeros um <laughs> but it's just remarkable i'm obviously uh, i i'm talking to you across this thing right now and this is yeah. is this all ones and zeros is this what's happening oh uh, yeah at some level yeah it's like layers built upon layers of stuff so that at the top level we can understand what's going on and we can interact with it no it's just incredible it really really is I don't get it. See, and I think most listeners won't either get it. And we, we can't. Maybe we just can't get it. That's well, it's hard for it. me as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it's hard for me to even, like, think about it at that level. In a way, you have to kind of like, I think, to be able to understand it, you have to just look at one kind of level of abstraction at a time. So just at the ones and zeros levels and maybe a level and maybe a bit built on top of that. But to be able to connect them all together all the time, I think you'd go insane. It must be magic. I think it's magic. Yeah, um, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm lying. It's magic. You're lying. It's magic. <laughs> Don't tell anyone, though. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> I'm not telling anyone except all the listeners, but they hopefully they yeah. won't tell anyone. No. Um, <laughs> tell me about your book. Tell me about it. Tell me about Saving about Bletchley Park. About Saving Park. Bletchley Park. Well, so I ran a campaign from 2008 to 2011 to save Bletchley Park. I mean, I, f- I first went up there in 2003 didn't really know much about the place and came away the first time having found out that I thought it was kind of 50 old blokes that worked there Um, but in fact during the Second World War but in fact it was more than 10,000 people and more than 8,000 women and I'd not seen that kind of story out there anywhere right so in 2003 I came away thinking I've got to raise the profile of the women that worked at Bletchley Park um, and then got some funding for an oral history project, recorded the memories of some of the women that worked there, some of the code breakers. Um, and then at the launch of that project, the um, director of Bletchley Park at the time said that they might have to close because they were they didn't have enough money, basically, and the visitor numbers were dropping, stuff like that. Um, so, And then I got invited up to a reception at Bletchley Park, just in 2008, and did a full tour of the site, which I'd not done before, and um, found out that the work that was done there was said to have shortened World War II by two years. And at that time, uh, 11 million people a year were dying. So potentially the work that was done there had saved 22 million lives. And I just thought to myself, and this place might close. That's that's ridiculous. I've got to do something about it. So hmm. kind of going back to my career. So, you know, I was an academic, I was a lecturer, a senior lecturer, a principal lecturer. So by now in 2008, I was head of department. So I was head of department at University of Westminster, which meant that I could email all the heads of professors of computing in the country and ask them basically to help save uh, Bletchley Park. And, um, you know, and got lots of, uh, got enthusiastic response from lots of heads and professors straight away. I emailed a few journalists to try and like raise the profile of Bletchley Park and Rory Keflin Jones was one of them. And so the BBC technology correspondent. So he then interviewed me, I think the next week at Bletchley Park saying, I'm ashamed to be British. Why don't we look after our heritage kind of thing? Um, and then that went out on BBC News and like, it was front page of the BBC website and stuff. So it was kind of like the beginning of a campaign. And there was sort of like a big sort of crescendo of a response from people in terms of emails and stuff. But then it all sort of died down and then I didn't really know what else to do. Um, and it wasn't really until the end of that year, so to end of 2008, beginning of 2009, that I started using Twitter. So I'd signed up for Twitter in 2007 and just thought, what is this rubbish? Um, mm. I set up a blog 
and then got Stephen Fry involved because he tweeted a selfie of himself uh, and mm. some friends stuck in a lifting centre point. So that was back in February 2009. And I just saw the photo of him and thought, Stephen Fry, he must be interested in Bletchley Park. You know, I know he loves technology. I know he loves history. So I sent him. So luckily he was following me. I sent him several direct messages on um, Twitter and uh, he responded by tweeting a link to my blog the next day. And I'd been getting about 50 hits a day on my blog, which I thought was great. But then yeah. that day I got 8,000 hits. Um after he uh, tweeted, and that day I was the most retweeted person in the world on, on wow. Twitter. Yeah, amazing. So it really, I was kind of like learning how to run a campaign as I went, you know, following my nose as I went along, really. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, but that was amazing. So I was like, okay, if you, it's, it's obvious once you know it, if you get key influential people that care about the same yeah. things, you can have a big impact really quickly. So I think that was mm. a real turning point for the campaign from being sort of my hobby, I suppose, into being an actual campaign where lots of people got involved. After three years, um, they got 4.1 million from the Heritage Lottery Fund uh, and they'd applied for Heritage Lottery funding just before I started the campaign and got turned down. So I think kind of raising awareness um, and profile made, made a big difference in terms of, you know, they were then seen as a, a viable option for, for funding, mm. whereas before they weren't. Um, yeah, so it took three years in the end. Um, wow! But then, what the was Stephen Fry them. like? Was it nice meeting Steve? Sorry, <laughs> I know it's it's really funny, isn't it? Because like, I, I'm not a phase of meeting anyone. You know, like the Queen, just anyone these yeah. days. Did you meet the Queen? Yeah, a couple of times. Oh. What was she <laughs> like, and than... what was Stephen Fry like? <laughs> well, she's very quiet and polite. So she, I can't even remember what she said. Um, yeah. But just, you know, whatever. It's not like we had a long conversation. Yeah, she probably pushed you about quantum computing and you were like, look, yeah. I don't know all that stuff. That's not my specialty, <laughs> Queenie. Come on. Yeah, yeah, that's that is, in fact, you just remind me, that was our conversation. Um, <laughs> no, I think she said, I don't know, lovely to meet you or something. Yeah, I can't was remember. Was that related to Bletchley that you got to meet her or was other I stuff? I don't actually know. No, I, don't, I think it's just from being in tech. I got invited to a technology re uh, reception at Bletchley Park. Oh, not cool. a Bletchley Parker Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Got you in the brain. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. At Buckingham Palace. Well, the Queen did. So after the campaign, the Queen did uh, come up to Bletchley Park as well. So they're all sort mm. of connected in a way. Um, but yeah. yeah, I don't know. It was a reception for people in tech in the UK. Okay. So okay. yeah, so I met her then and a few other times. Uh, but Stephen Fry, he's the only yes. person that I felt kind of shy of out of everybody I've met. Like, I think, like, you know, in the last 20 years, I was just a bit like, oh, what do I say? Oh, I don't know. So, you know, I just pretended again that I was, that I wasn't shy. <laughs> because you were, is this because you were starstruck? Because he's just, you know, such a big brain. Yeah, a, yeah, I guess yeah. so. And I just think, you know, when it's someone that you've known for a long time, obviously not, you know, known, um, as in known, not really yeah, known. Yeah, yeah known about and you know i really like things that he's done and he speaks sense a lot of the time and he's you know he's obviously yeah just seems like an all-around kind of great guy and then yeah. to to actually meet him he's just a bit weird you know whereas if, if it's someone that you haven't kind of you know like the queen i didn't feel not to disrespect the queen of course <laughs> but i it, i didn't feel nervous in fact i didn't even know i was going to meet the queen to be honest because we went to this technology re uh reception at buckingham palace and i was queuing up with my friend um emma to like you arrive you put your coats mm. in the sort of cloakroom place and then you go upstairs 
and then you get given a glass of, of Prosecco or Champagne. I don't know. I can't tell the difference. Uh, standing in a queue. They both taste lovely. Uh, standing yeah. in a queue with a drink. And there's like, I don't know, say 50 people in front of us, kind of like chatting away in pairs and then going through an arch, like into another room, I'm guessing. And so we're just chatting away. How are you? How are you? We haven't seen each other for ages. Gradually making our way forwards uh, in this queue. And then uh, we sort of get to the doorway and then a, a guy... Uh, in uniform like takes my glass from me and and I had a card as well which I think had my name on and mm. um, so he took that from me in a nice way not in a horrible way and then oh the Queen's right there for me to shake hands with so the Queen was just kind of like around the corner inside the arch so I was like oh oh so that's why I can't remember what she said do you <laughs> like, shake the shake Queen's hands, hands? The queen. yes she had gloves mm. on yeah firm but not handshake like, not vigorous no, I don't think so. But again, I can't remember. It was just such a shock, a nice shock. Uh, and then there was the Duke of Edinburgh. And actually, I saw I saw oh. the Duke of Edinburgh was like next there for me to shake hands with. And um, I just thought, oh, please say something rude about my hair. Because <laughs> I've got bright red hair. I thought he might just say something rude, but he didn't. Um, so I was a bit disappointed. He just said yeah. something nice. Yeah. No, so, and that behavior. was it. And then we're kind of in a reception. But yeah, so I met the Queen, but I had no clue that that was going to happen at all. I guess the Stephen Fry bit's more nerve-wracking because you had to entertain him, so to speak, as you were showing him around Bletchley, yeah. whereas the Queen... You're not expected yeah. to say anything to the Queen. No, no, true. In fact, yeah, it's probably it's better that you don't. It's not encouraged <laughs> that you go off <laughs> off piste with her. No, no, exactly. Oh. Yeah, so yeah, no, Stephen Fry was absolutely lovely. We'd spent a day with him at Bletchley Park in May of 2009 when he came up for the day. And, um, you know, yeah, he was taken on the tour and, and Rory Kefflin Jones came along as well. Um, and um, Christian Payne, documentally, who's one of the guys that first kind of got in touch through Twitter, mm. who's an amazing social media person. Um, yeah, and we did a tour and ended up bumping into one of the veterans there. And it's just this amazing moment because Stephen Fry is really tall, right? He's like six, five or something. I'm not mm. sure. Mm. And there was this lady um, who was one of the veterans who was walking around with her family. And um, I think like Stephen Fry saw her and like said, oh, did you work here? And she was like, yes. So then they had this chat and he's absolutely massive. And she was tiny, like five foot. And then so I think he knelt down. And so they had like this little conversation together. And it was just, it was so lovely. So oh, lovely. You know, and it was so kid. nice that, yeah, that he got to meet one of the veterans as well, you know, on his tour around. But yeah, yeah. no, he's a great guy. I saw him at an airport once. I think it was Luton. Um, yeah, because I was picking someone up, and he was on their plane. So they had texted me before saying Stephen Fry's on my plane. So I was like, I'll come yeah. pick you up. And yeah. I, I was stood there. <laughs> I've never seen somebody walk through an airport at that speed because obviously oh, he just, right. he's, he's knackered. He's cut off yeah. a plane. He doesn't yeah, want doesn't want to talk to anybody. He, yeah. whoop, he was yeah. down and out, and, and I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, there were people with like their book autograph, and he was just out. You know, it must be knackered, yeah. and you're that famous. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's a level of fame. Yeah, no, I've I've had I've had one day of of that sort of fame, um, just <laughs> because I I get well, I gave so I got the social impact award at the Grace Hopper conference um, mm. oh. in the US in 2017, I think. So flew over to Orlando and was at this conference. And so I got to give a speech at the beginning of the conference to 17,000 women in tech. So again, that's another kind of level in terms of uh, speaking in front of people. So I was a little bit nervous, but you know, it was all good. And, uh, and it's funny because I saw, um, Melinda Gates was kind of like oh. pacing up and down. She was after me. Like, and I was like, Oh my goodness, you know, I've, I've kind of made it. And, uh, 
Uh, yeah, so went on stage, gave my speech. And then for the rest of the conference, I had people coming up to me for the whole conference for three whole days saying, oh, Sue, can we get a selfie? I loved your talk, blah, blah, blah. So it was just utterly amazing. And at the same time, after when that happens all the time, yeah. I was like, I even like went to the loo. And as I came out the cubicle, someone said, Sue, I loved your talk and wanted to shake hands with me in the loo. Let me wash them first. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I was thinking. Don't you want me to wash my hands? <laughs> but um, but it was so it was lovely. But at the same time, it's really really exhausting. Yeah. And so after about three or four hours of that, like continuously, wherever we went anywhere, my friend just grabbed me and just like pulled me into a talk somewhere and sat me down in the audience. Um, because there was a talk on stage, right? So no one could come up to me, and I was like. Oh yeah, wouldn't I think of this? Just to like have a breather of sitting with no one talking to me or asking me for a selfie. Yeah. But um it was a, just a little taste of what it must be like to be yeah. mega famous. And it's it's lovely, but it's so hard. It's it's really, really like wears you out so much. Yeah. This is why I've made a concerted effort to not be successful. <laughs> so many of us have seen <laughs> I'll distract from my terrible joke. Um, many of us have seen the imitation game. Have you seen the imitation game? And, and of how course, is it? Especially yes. Park, like, yeah, is it like that? Was that exciting to see actually when that came out for you? Because you've been in and around yeah. this for so long. Totally. Well, so so I knew that the film was being made uh, because of Twitter. So you know, because I'd spent several years building up this whole community of thousands of people on on Twitter that cared about Bletchley Park and code breaking and stuff and Alan Turing so when um, I think when someone bought the script or there was a meeting about buying sorry the script um, in Hollywood I had someone message you know someone tweeted about that tweeted me about that mm. so you know so it was really interesting so I kind of knew every step of the way through the, the film being produced so which was probably like cool. a three or four year period I can't remember um, mm. you know like all different points in, in what was happening because I'm sure at some point uh, the sort of like the gossip was that Leonardo DiCaprio was going to be Alan Turing. Oh, wow. And then it was like, no, it's not. It's going to be ben Benedict Cumberbatch. So I don't know what happened yeah. there. Maybe he asked for too much money. I don't know. Or maybe that just... It feels like it couldn't have been anyone but him now, No, it? I know. I know. But maybe yeah, it would absolutely. have been fine. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. And then when they were scouting for locations, so someone tweeted saying, oh, I've just seen this guy from um, Black Bear Productions get on the plane at LAX. He's coming over to scout for locations in the UK. So like, while this, and, oh, and also they said that, and um, he's not going to visit Bletchley Park as a potential location. So so then while he was on the plane, the poor guy, um, I and others were saying, well, he's got to go to Bletchley Park. You know, so we're all tweeting saying, you've got to go to Bletchley Park, blah, 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 blah. blah. You can't not go to Bletchley Park. Uh, and then, you know, so he must have got like, I don't know, 150, 5,000, I don't know, tweets when he got off the plane um, saying he got to go to Bletchley Park. And then he did go to Bletchley Park. Um, and um, But they didn't use Bletchley Park as the main ah. location. But apparently the reason was because it didn't look enough like Bletchley Park. Oh, for fuck's sake. Which doesn't make <laughs> sense. But all I can think is it's not what the American audience, who of course would be the main audience for the film, would imagine Bletchley Park would look like because they used right. a stately home kind of, near Bletchley Park somewhere um, 
but it is the the scenes in the bar in the film are shot in the ballroom in Bletchley Park. So oh, okay. so they have got some scenes there. Because at least Bletchley um, got some money out of it, then I suppose. I, I hope so. Know? I hope so. Yeah. I didn't ask, but I hope so. They definitely got lots mm. of publicity, which was amazing. Yeah. So so I kind of like was you know knew about it all the way through, and then um, when it came out, or maybe it was just before it came out. There was a, like a special kind of preview or something um, in North London that I was invited to along with someone that brought along an Enigma machine and one of the veterans and stuff. And then so we watched the film. I saw it for the first time in the audience and then we were all up on the on the stage afterwards answering questions from the audience and stuff. And um, so, I, you know, I sat there like my husband watching the film. And, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a good film. It's definitely a good film. But it's just so inaccurate in terms of what actually happened that it's crazy. So, for example, Alan Turing didn't build that machine at all. He came up with the theoretical Ah. model for it with Gordon Welshman, one of the other code breakers. Um, But he didn't build it at all. And so, you know, so there's that. It was built by a guy called Doc Keane and his team. Wow, and um, you know, so who didn't obviously in the film get any credit? That's a for, liberty, for what isn't it? That's a total it's a liberty. Massive liberty. Just, yeah, it's yeah. just him standing up because I rewatched it in advance yeah. of talking to you. Oh, just, really? Oh, he's wow. just yeah, he's standing yeah. there. Just his, the whole film is about him and his machine. Yeah, it? yeah. So that didn't happen. Oh, uh, you know what? There's another bit that it just didn't ring true at all when I was watching yeah. it because I, I think it is true that once they did figure out the codes and stuff, they they decided that they couldn't. Um, they they couldn't use it too much because the the Germans would know uh, yeah. that we had this machine and change everything. Yeah. So they had to. And there's a, there's a scene in the film where one of the guys in there says, "But my brother's on this boat." And then Turing's going, "Well, we're not going to tell anyone." And I just thought maybe that order did that did have, but not from him. He doesn't make that decision. No, it would be above and, him. Yeah, and I don't think that happened either. So you, you go, they punched him. Oh, they punched him in the face. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I just I just punched my microphone. <laughs> bit of realism um yeah yeah sound effects so yeah no so um uh yeah and so also the guy that ran bletchley park so he's seen as like an ogre and a tyrant in in the film whereas of course he's not right because he's running the whole of bletchley park why would you know so of course he wasn't so then and i think they used his actual name in the film from what i can remember so then you know i know not well but i've met his relatives his grand grandson and so now yeah. everyone thinks his granddad is an awful person that tried to stop Alan Turing uh, cracking the codes and what, saving the war. Was that no. Mark Strong who played that? There's a book. The oh, I don't know fella. who played it. I don't know who played it, but the actual um, person. No. I do know his name, but I've forgotten. Um, but anyway, so so there's loads of issues with it, and of course, you know, eight thousand women worked at Bletchley Park. How many women were in the film? Mm. Kira Knightley. One, one, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it was like 80% women at Bletchley, but, you know, that didn't come over either. Um, it didn't. You know, and I know you need to have some kind of, like, evil person in there, but wasn't Hitler evil enough, you know, for the film? <laughs> yeah, I suppose so, but he wasn't um, in it. No, but, you know, they could have... Um, I don't know. You know Kira, Knight- Kira Knightley's parents are not nice because they don't like her sort of fraternising with the... Is she a real character, the character she played? Is that a real... Do you know if that's a real person? Yeah, wasn't she was um I've forgotten her name as well. Oh I'm terrible names. I'm gonna names. look it up. Look it up. Yes, look but it yeah, up. she was engaged to Alan Turing. Right, Joan Clark. Joan Clark, yeah, so Joan Clark was a real person who was a code breaker. Um yeah. and um Charles Dance. Yeah, she was, was engaged. Commander Charles, Charles Dance. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, he wasn't an ogre. Um and in fact, you know, there was only six people in the world who knew exactly what was going on at Bletchley Park. 
Uh, Churchill wow. was one. He was another, <gasps> and four other people, I guess, in intelligence or senior intelligence or whatever. Um, so the people at Bletchley Park didn't know what each other were doing at all. You know, everything was very, wow. very co- compartmentalized. Um, of course. How does the machines yeah, to keep work? Keep it secret. I- how do, so again in, in, yeah, in like yeah. baby no, speak no I can't I can't tell you that because it's too complicated is it um, well basically the yeah. the so the the bomb machine which is called Christopher in the imitation game it's actually called the bomb machine B-O-M-B-E um, is um, what it does is it kind of cranks through given certain inputs it cranks through all the different combinations and permutations for those inputs um, and then comes up with various settings which could potentially be an answer to this is how to crack the code today because the the codes um, because it changed every night at midnight to a new um, code but mm. but it was the same way of breaking the codes every day but with different inputs so you'd get you wouldn't know um, what the new code was for that day to kind of give us input. Oh, God. Um, I feel like I'm back in that class again at school. <laughs> well, I, feel, I feel like, uh, I don't know. I don't know Computing. Like. Yeah. Don't ask me about anything technical. <laughs> I try to understand it in your book and I've tried to okay. Wikipedia it. and I've Because okay. you do explain it in your book. And I think for anybody okay. who has an IQ slightly higher than mine, which is 99% of the world, they will actually be able to grasp the concept. But my head is just No, like it is swimming. complicated. No, it is complicated. It's not straightforward. I mean, if it yeah. was, it would have been easy, right? And it really wasn't easy. You know, there were there were three Polish mathematicians that um, that worked out how the Enigma machine worked, I think, like before the Second World War. Um, and Turing met up with them, I think, in Paris uh, oh, yeah. to discuss it with them and get some information from them. And then, but I think it was made, Enigma Machine was made more complicated. So that he then had to kind of add, add extra bits onto that about how to break it and then come up with a theori- theoretical model of a machine which could do that and then find someone, which was Doc Keen and his team, to actually build that machine. Did they? Did it help to crack? I, I believe maybe because they they had certain words that were always there to do sometimes to do with the weather and sometimes yeah. Heil, Hit, Heil Hitler as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That seems like a massive oversight for such a complicated code it's from the Germans. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah. but you've got to think about you know it's loads of you know it'd be soldiers out in the field, um, you know, in trenches, typing yeah. in messages, you know, and so they're not all kind of like trained coding. You know, oh. like, as in like cryptography experts or anything. They're probably just told to do this certain thing or following a few instructions in a booklet and doing it. So, you know, they might be told not to repeat stuff, but, mm. you know, but they just did. You know, like Weather Report is is uh, one of them and um, someone put always put his girlfriend's name in it or something. Yeah. And then someone exactly retyped a message, which uh, was a massive help in, in cracking the codes one time. Ah, that yeah. And what is this? They're typing something, are they? And it's going out into the airwaves, and we're intercepting that typing thing. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you'll have so many people getting in touch with you. No, you're overestimating the listener base and their engagement. (laughs) (laughs) They're not engaged. They're half listening to this while watching TV. Okay, but so they're typing it on an Enigma machine. Yeah. And yeah, it's being transmitted. 
Mm. But I'm guessing it's being picked up by Morse code. Mm. No, uh, mm. Why don't I know the answer to that? I haven't you don't thought about this that. for I'm, a long time. I haven't thought about you know, it for yeah. a long time. I can take that excuse. bit out. I don't. I don't want you to feel like you know. Although you said you don't care, actually, <laughs> so fuck them all anyway. But I can that. whatever, whatever you want. I just you know, you're you're obviously you're a professor of computer science. Don't make me sound University. stupid, please, you Andrew. Can, you can't sound stupid. And the people I've had on here, can, you yeah. know, they are. If you're talking stupid, I mean, some of the stuff other professor Sue Dame Black said, or oh, Dame Sue Black, <laughs> <laughs> absolute imbecile. No, she's not. She's very smart no, she's as well. Not, you both, yeah. both, yeah, she's smart quite smart no you're smart different stuff she's smart about yeah. um death and, and how Dead she wants bodies. to die Did you, have yeah. you heard how she she wants to die no she wants to well when she dies she wants to have her body um like dissected by her own students um, <gasps> yeah and wow. to she wants them to really do away with everything and go like really deep into all that she went like really explicitly she was like the tissue yeah. and the muscle and i want everyone to tear apart everything and then when they're done they'll have to do some sort of solution to get rid of all the rest of the sort of gristle and stuff and then yeah. i want them to hang my skeleton up in my classroom <gasps> to teach forever wow <laughs> yeah. uh, immortality that's what immortality is i guess i anyway, know yeah I, know. I couldn't believe what no, she she's was. great she's so down to earth <laughs> about all that stuff yeah well mm. yeah that's for scary. It scared the shit out of me. But um, <laughs> so, what what do you what have you learned from talking to some of these code breaker people that you've met? Like, did, uh, are there yeah. any particular ones whose stories you might want to tell, or like? Yeah, who's, who's sure. Really well, so yeah, so we became really good friends with Captain Jerry Roberts and his family. He, so he was one of the code breakers, um, and he was always campaigning for more recognition for the code breakers that aren't so well known. Um, and in particular, Bill Tutt was one of them who he shared an office with at Bletchley Park. And um, so he he always used to tell the story of how, you know, he shared an office with Bill Tutt, who he didn't know very well. And he said Bill Tutt used to just sit in the sit in the office with um, a, a pencil and a piece of paper and just like jot something down now and again. And, and um, Jerry always used to say, you know, I couldn't work out, was he earning his corn? You know, like how how why was he being paid to sit there? Uh, and he wasn't doing anything and then he said and actually then he realized he was a genius because he was just sitting thinking um about how the uh lorenz machine uh worked and which is um a bit similar to the enigma machine but different and and so he was sitting there working out all the inner workings of a machine which would be like you know like alan turing did for enigma um bill tutt did for lorenz so worked out um how to create a, a machine, a theoretical model of the machine, which would then um, break the, the Lorenz. And so that machine was called Colossus, uh, which, and, and in terms of Bletchley Park, the Colossus and Bomb rebuilds are still there at Bletchley Park and the, sorry, not at Bletchley Park, next door to Bletchley Park Museum at the National Museum of Computing. Um, both those machines are there, so you can go and uh, visit them. Why is Turing the name? Because um, there's several machines, apparently. Is it because of the yeah. movie, or was it before? It was a bit before that. Is it his story that the the being punished? I think for being it's partly gay? his story because it's just so tragic, really. Um, but you know, there, there are lots of other people who have tragic stories as well. You know, like um, one of the code breakers. So I can't remember which one it was, but um, one of the people that worked at Bletchley Park was always telling this story. You know, kind of like talking about other code breakers that work there and, and their amazing stories. And one of them was uh, a major code breaker at Bletchley Park. Um, 
who, you know, everyone was sworn to secrecy. They had to sign the Official Secrets Act when they'd started working there. And um, he uh, had been a major codebreaker and then, you know, and didn't tell anybody. And his, uh, when speaking to his father on his father's deathbed, his father said to him, you've never amounted to much, have you? Uh. Right. And he didn't tell him even then that he was, he had been one of the major codebreakers at Bletchley Park. And it's oh, a heartbreaking, God. heartbreaking stories. Wow. And I think actually, you know, it was quite hard for lots of people when the war ended because they couldn't say they'd worked at Bletchley Park. So for some of them, it's fine because they went into, you know, like special operations or, or whatever, or GCHQ. Um, but for other people, they couldn't say that they'd worked at Bletchley Park because no one was allowed to talk about it. So particularly for the men, actually, um, you know, they they would have been seen as cowards because they hadn't mm. been soldiers. This father, even if his son had amounted to nothing, I mean, that's yeah. quite a thing to say. You wouldn't say that, bed. would you? Well, you know, Fuck I me. wouldn't say that. But yeah, well, exactly. That's pretty dire. You know, but then there's other there's other um, stories like um, Jean Valentine, who's one of the sort of lovely women uh, that works at Bletchley Park that I got to know quite well as well. She told the story, you know, how she ended up at Bletchley Park. So she was at school. She was like an 18-year-old at school. And her headmaster recommended her to Mm. Bletchley Park, whoever was recruiting there, um, because she was really good at solving puzzles and, like, cryptic crosswords and stuff Mm. like that. So then she um, uh, got asked to arrive at Bletchley Railway Station. She didn't know what for. um, And it was she lived in Scotland, so she said it's the first time she'd ever, like, left home. She left home, got the train down from um, Scotland down to uh, Bletchley. And then she had no more instructions of what to do. So she just arrived at Bletchley Station. And I think she said it was like night time and didn't know what to do. So she asked like the the guy that was on the station, the station master or whatever, um, I've just been told to come here and I, I don't know what else to do. And he said, oh, it's just, it's just over the road. Just go over the road. So she's like, Okay, then. <laughs> so she goes over the road, and there's the entrance to to Bletchley Park. So it's not it's not directly opposite anymore, but I think it was at the time during the war. Um, so she went over the road, and then you know got taken, sort of went through the kind of like sentry bit, then got taken into uh, a room. I think one of the huts where there was a guy sitting at a desk and also a soldier holding a gun kind of like in the corner. And she was told that she had to sign the Official Secrets Act. She was never allowed to tell anyone what she was going to be doing. Um, But she didn't even know what it was she was going to be doing. And so, you know, you can just imagine an 18-year-old schoolgirl coming down, you know, first time away from home with all of that, you know. And she said she thought, you know, that kind of like she felt like, the message was, we'll kill you if you tell anybody. And that's why the soldier yeah. was there with the gun kind of uh, standing in the background. So wow. she signed and, uh, you know, and then worked at Bletchley Park for several years. Work as one of the bomb operators, so operating one of the bomb machines. Oh, right, yeah. The mm. codebreaker bomb machine. But, yeah, yeah. Alan Turing it's, bomb machine. Yeah. It's a really weird pact to sort of enter into. It's yeah. like if somebody says to you, like, I'll tell you a secret... But yeah. you want to be like, well, hang on, I want to know what the secret is before I commit to keep yeah. it. Because what if it's, but you just got to sign it because there's a bloke with yeah. a gun. But also how exciting for her to sort of yeah, go yeah, down absolutely. from Scotland. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So it's just like terrifying and really exciting at the same time. There's nothing like that nowadays, is there? I, you just that, that kind of excitement. Maybe there's fear as yeah. well because of the war yeah. is going. We don't really want, yeah, we don't really want that much excitement, I don't think. Do no, but, no. But, but well, that that's sort of like that's sort of been lost nowadays because every everyone's been everywhere. But that thing of being able to 
just like I don't yeah. know if you've never been down to sort of near London isn't it but actually yeah. Park, to sort of get on the train you're, you're moving from a di- to a different country it's the dead of night you yeah. don't know where you go you're 18 that's yeah. really exciting yeah it mm. is what is um what's what's about now is it like there's a museum and everything there now people yeah yeah that's it it's a 26 acre site still so there's Mm. a big museum there and there's also the national museum of computing next door which has got all of the computing heritage stuff there so it's worth visiting both places yeah i want to check that out at some point Mm. I can't believe I've never been there, actually. Where is it? Is it up near, is it, what, North it's, London? It's in Bletchley. Yeah, it's uh, 50 miles north yeah. of London. So it's, are you based in London? Well, I'm Berlin. But, uh, oh, of course but, you're in Berlin. But yeah. I'm Berlin, you, no, you I'll be back I in. Forgot, my, I forgot, I forgot. I can't my, remember anything. <laughs> I'm in bloody Berlin. My family's in, in, in uh, yeah. <laughs> is yeah. in, uh, my family's in Watford, so I can't Oh, uh, yeah, well, yeah, you can get on the train from Watford. I think it's, oh. it's only 36 minutes from London, from Euston. So oh. I think from Watford, it's maybe 20 minutes. So you've got no excuse. Got no I want excuse. a full report when you've been. <laughs> yeah. a full report. I'll, I'll send it to you in Morse code. <laughs> <laughs> See if you can crack it. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> it was a lot of fun talking to Sue. We really had a good laugh and it was incredibly informative. Um, I'm so happy to have learned... I mean, I didn't know anything really about Bletchley Park, so I'm really delighted to know a little bit more. And I hope you listeners are also happy to have learned a bit more about it. Uh, so thank you, Sue, for coming on. We all owe a debt to her for keeping such an important and historic place open. Remember to get her book, Saving Bletchley Park. There's a link in the show notes. If anyone can think of a third Professor Sue Black that I should talk to, do let me know. But otherwise, just check out episode 37 with the other Sue. She's absolutely fascinating too and talks about death and carrying heads secretly on a plane. Thank you again to my sponsor, Beer52. Just go to beer52.com edge and pay £5.95 postage to get your free beers. If you're one of the newbies that were hooked in by the Apple Carousel feature, do subscribe to this podcast for more interviews with fascinating people and get the bonus interviews each week on patreon.com slash andrewgold or just the Patreon app. Here's a snippet of this week's bonus interview with Sue when she talks about what happened, quite a funny story, when she was invited onto Desert Island Discs. What did you say on um, Desert Island Discs? What did I say? Uh... Yeah, were you nervous? Oh man. No, I was really excited. When I when I got I got an email saying we'd like you to be on Desert Islanders just before I was about to get on a plane to Amsterdam with my daughter. It's half term. I was going to give ah. a talk in Amsterdam. And I got the email and I was like, oh my God, Leah, my uh, youngest daughter. So she would have been about 14 then. Leah, I'm going to be on Desert Islanders. Oh my God, oh my God. And she was like, what's that? What's that? And I was like, uh. oh, I've got to tell people. So I tweeted, I'm going to be on Desert Islanders. Because then I, when we got on the plane. Uh, and then we got off the other end. My phone rings. Yeah. It's my agent. Wrong Sue Black. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're so rude. Um, yeah. No, we've both done it, actually. I think she did it before me. Bloody hell. <laughs> yeah. And so I know it was my agent saying, you're not allowed to tell anyone you're going to be on Desert Island Discs. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. What should I do? She's like, delete all the tweets. Delete the tweets. I was like, oh, oh my God. Delete all the tweets. Yeah. So, so I thought maybe they'd tell me I couldn't do it then. But it was all fine in the end. So that was just one minute out of the 15 or so of the bonus interview this week. You can get that on patreon.com slash andrewgold or on the Patreon app. Thank you to this week's new patron. That's Ruth Hannah Van Stratton. 
Um, and if you can, everyone, I'd love to hear reviews or read reviews rather from you on Apple. You can do it just in the app. And here are last week's newest reviews. Somebody called Killing Time Daily in the United States wrote, Excellent, with four exclamation marks. I really, really is in capitals, enjoyed the interview with the plane crash survivor. Highly recommended, four exclamation marks again. Thank you for all the work you put in. Well, thank you so much. I really loved editing that one. That was last week's one with Koche and Siate, who survived 72 days in the Andes and had to eat the dead to survive. Uh, it's had quite possibly the best reception of any of my episodes so far. People really enjoyed listening to Koche. It was just so emotional, and I found myself crying while editing it, which is unusual, because there is possibly no better example in history of human perseverance. Amazing guy, Koche Inciarte. So if you haven't listened yet, do check that one out. Um, and JJ2203, probably someone who was born on the 22nd of March, which is the day after my birthday, the 21st of March, uh, JJ is in the UK and wrote, just brilliant. I've listened to so many as I started from the beginning and I'm working my way backwards. I love the guests and they are all so different. Not sure what I'm going to do when they end. Ah, oh, thanks, JJ. And don't you worry about them ending. I'll just keep making these episodes every week on Mondays. Speaking of which, in the next couple of weeks, I'm chatting to a really inspiring and amazing woman, South African Olivia Jackson, a stuntwoman and martial arts expert who had a tragic accident while doing a stunt for the Resident Evil movie and lost her arm as a result. She's really inspirational, so do tune in for that. And also, I think or hope I'm speaking to Linda Calvi, known as the Black Widow. From the criminal underworld, Linda is known for killing her husband, I'm not sure which order those two episodes will be in, but tune in next week to find out.